just as an introduction, I cannot emphasize enough how much I like to be here, because it may sound, it may be surprising for you, but Norwegian culture is part of my life, but in a very primitive way. For example, when I walk here and along Karl Johan, I'm all the time surprised that there are normal people there because my idea is I should see all those Edward Munch zombies there, you know, <laughs> just normal, it's not natural. I think your tourist board should hire some zombies to make, because I was told that that area is now a tourist trap, more or less, you know? so you should do it. Or, like you, I know she, he is politically so-so, who he? your now big detective writer, Joe Nesbo, no? But nonetheless, I like his uh, snowman very much, and as maybe some of you, I was very sad to learn that something went wrong with American version. I think that two years ago, I read that Martin Scorsese was supposed to do the movie, no? So I just uh, like the country, but my true dream is to go to the north, because I was told that your racist, but in a more benevolent sense, racist <laughs> in the sense that, you know, in every country, and I think this is the best way to learn about a country, is to ask what inner antagonistic myths you have, like people here, what do they think about northern people, and I was told that the idea here is that up there in the north, people just drink and have sex, you know, lazy and so on. Well, I, not because of this, but my dream is to go from here to Russia, without entering Sweden, you know, <laughs> to go around. I just, I just like the country, that's all I wanted to say. And also, this is civilization. The bookstore, I don't know how you pronounce it, the one there where zombies walk a little bit north, no? I, I, I yeah, yeah, I, I really like it. Every time I'm here, I go there and so on, and I'm not kidding, like, you know, bookstores like this are just disappearing. In all of Manhattan, you no longer have a bookstore like that today. You have the big Barnes and Noble, and then if you ask there, for example, for Derrida, I can tell you what answer you will get. Something like, how do you spell that, sir, so that he can check it in a computer, you know. So, again, all the luck to you, I mean. Uh, you know why? Because maybe I'm wrong, it's easy for foreigners to idealize you, but even if we subtract all stupid idealization, I think if nothing else, that's at least how I, what I read about your country with some economists, you, your economy, okay, you were lucky, oil and so on, but nonetheless, does prove something. You are very competitive and so on, but nonetheless, compared with other countries, still relatively uh, egalitarian and so on, all that. So you are an empirical proof that it's simply not true. You know, when you want more equality, they immediately tell you, oh, this is a catastrophe, we will lose our competitivity. No, it's not, it's not necessary that you lose it precisely. Okay, if we go on like this, uh, well, then I would justify again my nickname, friends call me Fidel, not because of politics, but because, you know, Fidel comes, just a couple of remarks, and then if he is not ill, it's seven hours, so <laughs> let's do it. I hope you will not be disapp too disappointed by what I will 
deploy here because some of the stuff will be maybe known to some of you, but I really want to confront some difficult problems today about universality, Eurocentrism, is Eurocentrism necessarily something bad, and so on. So let me begin by a philosopher whom you may consider a right-winger, but he's at least an intelligent right-winger. Don't dismiss him. Peter Sloterdijk, the German. It's not as simple as some Habermasians think in Germany, who dismiss him almost as a neo-Nazi sometimes. Peter Sloterdijk remarked that if there is a person to whom they will build monuments hundreds of years in the future from now, it will be Lee Kuan Yew, the Singapore leader who invented and realized the so-called capitalism with Asian values. Singapore, the mega success story. Uh, uh, capitalism with Asian values, of course, has nothing to do with Asia. It's simply authoritarian capitalism. The virus of this authoritarian capitalism is slowly but surely spreading around the globe. It's interesting to know that before setting in motion his reforms, Deng Xiaoping visited Singapore and expressly praised it as a model that all of China should follow. And I think what happened 40 years ago around in Singapore has a world historical meaning. Till now, capitalism was, in a way, linked with democracy. There were, of course, from time to time, recourses to direct dictatorship. But after a decade or two, democracy again imposed itself, like in South Korea, in Chile, and so on. So again, although we can play this Marxist game and claim, oh, this was bourgeois democracy, but better bourgeois democracy than nothing. I think we should, as good Marxists, if you still are, I am, I hope so, completely <laughs> drop this idea, false, only formal bourgeois freedom. I mean, for a proper dialectician, forum matters. You know, and about this I will maybe talk later. You know, you know this standard boring Marxist doxa, our freedoms are just formal freedoms, human rights are not really universal, they mask a certain particular interest, they are really the rights of white men of property. Yes, it began like this. And of course there was a gap between form and content. But precisely because of this gap, what was at the beginning a universal forum which was false, masking particular interest, nonetheless triggered a dynamic of its own. You know the story. Yes, first human rights, of course, they were masking just certain rights of, again, white men of property. But you know the story. First, Mary Wollstonecraft said, why not also women, then black slaves in Haiti, why not also blacks, and so on. So, you know, in the gap between forum and content, don't underestimate the autonomy of the forum. So this standard Stalinist or hardline Marxist idea is just a forum. It masks content. No, this is not, it's not as simple as that. Every liberation begins with a forum in the sense that you establish that you are formally free. And only from this formal freedom can you even 
analyze and become fully aware of how, but really I am not free. But you see my dialectical point. For this, you need the form. Even with feminism, it's like this. My good friend, personally, we have some debates theoretically, Judith Butler, made this point nicely when he, she once wrote that the first step of feminine liberation is to, is to fully admit your subordination, you know, because uh, today in our societies, insofar as we still have in some societies anti-feminism, it's no longer a direct anti-feminism. You know, we are all liberals today. Yes, women suffered horrible, blah, blah, blah. But then, in so, uh, but then it's uh, like, uh, uh, how should I put it? Maybe I should, to make this point clear, repeat, because we, I can make a, a, a long talk only about this. Uh, the forms of domination today, the problem today, is that domination, more and more relations of domination, social hierarchy, appear as its opposite, as the very form of freedom. Let me tell you a story I'm, of mine, an anecdote. I'm sorry if some of you know it. This will make the point. Today, for example, let's say you are a young boy or girl. It's Sunday afternoon. You have an authoritarian father who tells you, listen, today you have to visit your grandmother. I know that you don't want it, that you are tired of her, but it's your duty. I don't care what you think, do it and behave properly there. I think nothing wrong with this. Because, you know, you will, why not? Because you experience this as an oppression. It leaves you the space to protest it, and so on. But then we have this nightmarish figure of modern permissive father. What will he tell you? He will probably tell you something like this. Listen, it's up to you to decide. You can visit your grandmother and not. Just remember how much she loves you, and so on. <laughs> you know, and every child, and children are not idiots, knows very well that beneath this appearance of free choice, there is a much stronger injunction. It's not just do it. It's you must like to do it. It orders you what freely to choose. And more and more, our freedoms are, are like that, I claim. Which is why I find it horrible. Is he translated here with you? Uh, the one who wrote about the indebted man, the Italian uh, uh, social philosopher, economist, Maurizio Lazzarato, where he pointed out how and this is the, the strength of ideology today. It's no longer just we are all equal. It's basically we are all capitalists. In what sense? They claim this. Let's say you are a poor worker barely surviving. Okay, you get a credit and then, of course, you are free to decide. Like, will you take a holiday? Will you, uh, will you invest in your health, in your children's education? And then the idea is... The term ideologically is self-entrepreneurship, you know. The idea is that, okay, you add a couple of zeros and you are a big capitalist. But with just a couple of thousand of euros or dollars, you are a small one. But that we are all at different levels investing capitalists. That even a poor worker who takes a credit, it's really a self-entrepreneurship, investing and so on and so on. You see, this is the ideology of our daily life. And the question to be asked, especially, I've written about this, and I think your 
le monde diplomatique uh, publish something about it. It's very important, especially in view of this ongoing, uh, of the ongoing secret negotiations, you know, about them, TISA, TAISA, and so on, which I think something incredible is happening here. We have nego extremely important negotiations which will really predetermine the basic coordinates of our economic life, flow of information for decades to come, and it's simply not debated in public. Why? That's the problem today. We are free, and I'm not making fun here again. These personal freedoms are very important. But what if somebody asks you, do you feel free? What will probably be your answer? Yes, because I can do whatever I want. I can choose my sexual orientation, choose the novels I, uh, I read, the movies I have, uh, travel where I want, and if I have a choose if there are options, of course, a profession. What, uh, we are free at this level of personal choices. But these personal choices, more and more, you know, they always did, happen within a certain network of, let's call it, social social frame, to put it simply, which predetermines which are even your choices. And I think a true decision, a true free act, is to change also this general framework, not just to choose this or that, but to choose to co-determine the very frame. And there, I think, we are less and less free. All key decisions, economic, military, are simply taken behind our backs more, uh, more and more often even in a secret way. And again, the tragedy is that we don't even experience this as a limitation of our freedom. Freedom for us today is, at a personal level, I can make the choices uh, that I want. So, okay, let me return to my main line. This is why I think that today, in our Western societies, on the one hand, uh, we are still free, but again, free in this limited sense of personal choices. And as I've written in a comment of mine recently, maybe this is why we were so fascinated with the events in Ukraine. I mean, I don't know, I'm not sure what really happened there, but the impression was that a collective act, like hundreds of thousands of people coming together and enforcing a global change of the entire situation. This is no longer even imaginable in our societies, I claim. We envied them. It was not that we were just narcissists. Oh, you see, uh, Ukrainians are also discovering our way, they want to join us. No, we envied them for such a collective act, at least it appeared to be. So again, on the one hand, our freedom is more and more limited at this level. On the other hand, worldwide, the link between democracy and capitalism is more and more broken, in the sense that today's most dynamic economies, China, South Korea, Singapore, <coughs> are precisely states or economies where, again, a market economy, very ruthless it can be, is nonetheless linked with or grounded in a strong authoritarian state. 
I simply claim that that's the future. Now comes a more problematic point. We hear a lot today about the failure of the Western civilization as a global model and the failure of those decolonized nations which tried to emulate, to imitate our Western way. Uh, this is the standard post-colonial mantra, you know, the time of Europe is over and so on. Uh, here, I have a problem with this diagnosis. Yes, the Fukuyama dream of global liberal democracy is over. And incidentally, Fukuyama knows it. Fukuyama himself is no longer a Fukuyamaist or whatever, <laughs> no? But at the level of economy, capitalism has triumphed worldwide. The third world nations which endorsed it are those which are now growing with spectacular rates. And now comes my problematic, maybe for some of you, point. Global capitalism has no problem in accommodating itself to a plurality of local religions, cultures, traditions, and so on. I totally disagree with those post-colonial thinkers who claim that ideologically, Global capitalism means we will all become stupid Americans eating hamburger. No, global capitalism is immanently multicultural. In the sense that it perfectly functions this way that at the economic level, global market, but our cultural identity remain specific. So the cruel irony of anti-Eurocentrism is that on behalf of anti-colonialism, one criticizes the West at the very historical moment when global capitalism no longer needs traditional Western cultural values like equality, democracy, in order to function smoothly and is doing quite well with authoritarian alternate modernity. In short, one tends to proclaim Western cultural values irrelevant at the very moment when critically reinterpreted Many of them, egalitarianism, fundamental rights, welfare state, can serve as a weapon against capitalist globalization. You see the irony that I see, which is why the irony of the fact that today's critique of anti-Eurocentrism fits perfectly this new authoritarian tendency. It's very sad how it's fashionable to criticize the West at the very point when finally some at least of values traditionally identified as Western values can really play a progressive emancipatory role. My next point, global capitalism does, as already emphasized, does not automatically push all its subjects towards hedonist permissive individualism. And the fact that in many countries which recently entered the road of rapid capitalist modernization, like India, many individuals stick to the so-called traditional pre-modern beliefs and ethics, family values, uh, rejection of hedonism, strong ethnic identification, and so on. This in no way prevents, uh, uh, this in no way, uh, uh, sorry, uh, proves that they are not fully modern. You know, it's not that some people think that we in the West are properly modern, individualism, hedonism, and so on, while in India or China, they are 
too stupid or backward and they still need some traditional values. No, I claim that uh, in, in, uh, it, is, uh, it is paradoxically the very, this sticking to traditional values, family and so on, is precisely what allows countries like China, Singapore and India to follow the path of capitalist dynamics even more radically than Western liberal countries. Reference to traditional values enable, enables individuals to justify their ruthless engagement in market competition, to justify it in ethical terms. I'm really doing this to help my parents and so on and so on. This is why I think that one of the signs of time is what happened now a couple of months ago in India. You know, their new uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi. At the same time, uh, radical neoliberal in economic terms, like he openly said. Today, China is getting too developed. The, soon, the price of labor in China will be too expensive, and this is a chance of India to offer massively cheap labor and so on. At the same time, he is a Hindu nationalist. Again, what I'm claiming is there is no tension here. Here, one should be effectively anti-Eurocentric. Capitalism today is really universal. If anything, it functions even better with uh, more authoritarian, private, ethical, and social order. This is why, paradoxically, only a new project of universal emancipation can enable us to fight the destructive effects of capitalist globalization. Uh, let me report to some, uh, let me report to you an experience that happened to me while I was in India. Maybe you know it, some of you, I'm sorry to repeat myself, but I think it's very important. When I was, and it tells a lot, when I was in India, I got engaged in a debate where some local post-colonial scholars told me, told me, but can't you see how underprivileged we are? The very fact that we have to speak in English the language of the colonizer to justify, to legitimize our decolonization. So already the very forum of decolonization is under colonial domination, foreign imposed language. Okay, it was typical racism that they addressed me as if my natural language is English, you know. <laughs> they didn't even notice this, that I don't, but I claim that uh, here is a paradox which I don't have time today to develop even at the philosophical level. You know, uh, there is this refined dialectical retroactive movement of how you experience something as lost, you are deprived from it, but what you lose did not pre-exist the loss. In the very act of losing it, it emerges. And this idea was given to me by my Indian friends. That is the same with the project of new democratic secular India. This is not a return to ancient India. Precisely what they want to return to 
emerged through the loss. So it's absolutely crucial. Here I remain, maybe you will disagree, a traditional Marxist. Who? And it's almost prohibited to quote that Marx on famous uh, uh, text on the results of colonial uh, domination in India, where Marx points out how ambiguous the colonization of India was. Yes, it was brutal. It did tear apart traditional communal times and so on, uh, community ties, but at the same time, it opens up, it opened up the space for liberation. And I think we should more than ever insist on this. Today, I don't think that to oppose global capitalism in, in its destructive features that some re in so by f it's so popular with many fake leftists, you know, this idea, local culture, some stupid local wisdoms can enable us to resist global capitalism. I know, I have Latino American friends who are telling me, but uh, our ancient uh, Latino Latino, South American tradition can be a resistance, then I tell them, yes, what do you plan? To return to Incas or Aztecs and to do some human sacrifices or what? And they, they tell me, no, 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 okay, they were bad, but... And then things get totally crazy. They tell me, but you know, there are some tribes in upper Amazon who had some notion of community, which can and so on. No, I totally disagree with this, and I will give you an example, two examples. Okay, the first one would have been South Africa apartheid struggle. The greatness with all the compromises that they made of African National Congress is that they never succumbed to the temptation of formulating their struggle against apartheid in the terms of returning to some African roots and all that bullshit and so on. You know who was preaching this message? I don't know if you are old enough if you remember it. Uh, Butelezi, a local king, who, as we know today, was on the payroll of apartheid, of course. His message was to keep nations... Because, you know, uh, you should do something very perverse that I did years ago. You should read the... Uh, official justifications of apartheid by South African ideologists. It's very interesting reading, because, of course, it was a fake just to justify racism. But it's interesting what they say. They don't say, we whites are more. No, they say, listen, if we allow blacks to rejoin our way of life, such a precious, wonderful local culture will disappear. What it will happen with hot and thought, with Bushmans, all this wonderful... They directly justified their racism in multiculturalist terms. ANC knew it all the time. No, at this level of political economic rights, we should be universalists. Uh, who knew this nicely? That's why I admired him uh, always. Uh, 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 Malcolm X, my true hero, you know, the black guy, okay, to speak in the language that you will maybe understand, played by Denzel Washington in Spike Lee's film, no? Uh, you know what was great about him? How he reinterpreted that X, Malcolm X, no family name, just X. Of course, it refers to the fact that the blacks were violently torn out of their communities in Africa, but, and I'm not bluffing here, I read him, but at the same time, Malcolm X 
totally rejects any notion of, you know, like in that, if some of you are old enough, uh, you may remember it some 30 years ago, there was a very popular TV series, Roots, Alex, hey, you know, oh, we return to Roots. No, he totally rejected this. He said, X, this X, being without roots, is at the same time a unique chance of freedom, of freely inventing a new communal forum for us. Okay, I don't agree with Malcolm X's solution, which was Islam. For him, Islam was this mode of uh, universalism. Of course, uh, at the same time, things are ambiguous with Islam. I am, no, I mean, I am not in any way sympathizing with so-called Muslim fundamentalism. Uh, I think even we should break this uh, uh, white liberal barrier that the moment you criticize Islam, oh, you are already Islamophobic, colonialist, or whatever. I have no problems criticizing Islam. But at the same time, one should notice, for example, if you ask me of one of the greatest political events of modernity. It's, I think, the one that I already mentioned, the Haiti Revolution. You know where in around 1800, black slaves rebelled there. Again, not on behalf of some shitty return to some roots or traditions. No, they simply took seriously the French Revolution and said, if it goes for the French, why not for us? And here, all my recognition goes to the, my beloved Jacobins, Robespierre and Just, who immediately acknowledged them, treated them as equal. Then Napoleon came, sent the army, and it's a crazy story, such a beautiful story, that in that army, Napoleon's army, to defeat the slaves, there were many Polish soldiers whom Napoleon mobilized. And when they were approaching the black army, rebellious army, they heard some singing. And they were, uh, their first reaction was, okay, some primitive tribal songs, whatever. Then you know what they discovered when they come closer to the army, uh, uh, to the black army, these French soldiers? They discovered that the blacks are singing Marseillaise. And hundreds of Polish soldiers broke down. They said, my God, are we on the right side? and they change sides. So uh, this is why I think that only with the Haiti revolution, at, at its repetition, French revolution really become a universal event. So there is even a wonderful paradox of ideology how the Haiti revolution dealt with this. They wanted to be a black republic when they wrote their constitution in 1804. But but at the same time, they wanted to be honest, like, my God, there are many good white people who helped us, and they should also be full equal citizens. So if you don't believe me, check it up. Haiti Constitution, 1804, the fourth article. It has a wonderful paradoxical line. It says, Haiti is a black republic, so all citizens of Haiti, independently of the color of their skin, are black. I find this an ingenious solution. That's the spirit that, that we need today, you know. And so that you will not think, I must tell you this, it, the story is nightmarish. From that point on, because they did what, you know, Haiti liberation was not this good liberal uh, liberation slowly, we will educate the blacks, blah, blah. No, the blacks did it. And 
they had to be taught a lesson. So you know what's the tragedy? And even now, today, Haiti feels the consequences as the poor country uh, destroyed. Do you know this? That uh, when in 1824-5, Haiti was again accepted as in Western trade, the price was terrible. They had to sign a contract with France, obliging them to, as it were, repay them for their liberation. The France simply accounted how much did those slaves cost in the market terms, and the state of Haiti had to oblige itself to, and of course, the result was, I'm not kidding here, it's an unknown uh, fact which is terrifying. You know that, to give you an idea, in late 19th century, Haiti was paying to France 80, 80, not 18, 80% of that, their state budget. You know when they paid the last installment in 1946? Okay, but let's go back. So, to Malcolm X and so on. So, again, uh, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, this is, again, the crucial point here. I think that it's absolutely crucial in our struggle for emancipation to avoid this temptation of, you know, particular local cultures as sites of resistance. Of course, I mean, I have nothing against them. But nonetheless, uh, the, if this is not connected or embedded in a global universal emancipatory project, it fits perfectly global capitalism. Again, I more and more think that global capitalism for ideological form is precisely multiculturalism, up to identity politics and so on and so on. Of course, all this should remain, but it's important that it is founded, grounded in a universal political project. And here I claim European legacy is crucial. The legacy of uh, the, what legacy? I don't have again time to go into it. What I even see as basic Christian legacy. The legacy of direct access to universality. You know, I'm an atheist to avoid a misunderstanding, but what I admire in Christianity, not Christianity, but what we find in the Bible, is this one, you know when Christ says, uh, 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 when Christ says, if you don't hate your mother, your father, you are not my follower, and so on, what does this mean? Of course, it doesn't mean the stupidity that you should kill or hate your mother, father. I think the way I read it, that mother, father, family, stands here for so organic social hierarchic order. What Christ is basically proposing is Holy Spirit, what we call as an egalitarian community outside, outside the outside hierarchical network. This is also how I read that the famous parable, you know, when Christ is with his disciples and somebody comes in and tells him, listen, your mother, blah, blah, your family is out there. No, and he says, no, my family is here. It doesn't mean you shouldn't love your mother, father, but not as mother, father. That's so unique about 
Christianity. And we find the same idea in modern, uh, in modern uh, democracy. This idea that, this idea which is basically opposed by fascism. Namely, the fascist idea is corporatism. You are a member of a community only by playing your specific role as an organic part of a global social edifice. And I had the same funny experience in China two years ago. They gave me that bullshit of, uh, you know, our goal today is no longer communism, but harmonious society, the Confucian term. So I asked them, okay, cut the bullshit. Tell me what is harmonious society for you? And they told me it's simply a society where everyone does his or her duty. Mother is a good mother. Pupil is a good pupil. Leader is a good leader. And then I exploded. I said, wonderful, now we, we overcome all these problems of cultural translation. We in Europe call this fascism. Yeah, it's perfect. We know where you are. You know? you know, they know very well that this terrifying fear of you as an individual having direct access to universality. And that's the point. What is... Uh, what is... Uh, uh, universality. Now we come, if you allow me, to a more complex theoretical level. You know, let me return to the point that I already made, the point about uh, 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 this limit of this pseudo-Marxist historicism. People think that the big Marxist point is to historicize, to recognize behind false appeal to universality, particular interest. Like, again, human rights are really not universal human rights. They are effectively the rights of... If you look at it closely, you see how subtly a certain group is privileged behind the apparently universal form. There is a truth in it. I don't doubt it. But I think a much more important lesson of Marx here is exactly the opposite one. We are not just effectively particular where we appear to be universal, but also the opposite. We are much more universal than we think we are. Here I have to, in the sense that the moment we, for example, participate on the market, we act universally. In what sense? Let's say I am a European merchant, I deal with Chinese merchant or manager, whatever. Of course, we can play at the cultural level this game of when we use the term state, art. How do we know that we mean it in the same sense? Isn't it that each of us understands this term in a particular way? Yes, but I claim I agree. But ultimately, this is irrelevant. It works. Business works. You know, in our forum, we are universal. Uh, then there is another absolutely crucial point by Marx, that uh, the distinction between universality in itself and universality for itself, a Hegelian distinction, in the sense that universality in itself is just the mute universality, like I am this, you are that, but we are all human. Ah, no. Marx sees the uniqueness of capitalist society in the fact that universality becomes for itself. In the sense that it's not only that, I don't know, I'm this, you are dead, but we are all workers. It is that 
abstraction is part of my immediate experience. The way I experience myself is as an abstract individual. Abstract in the sense that I am no longer immediately identified to a certain position, uh, uh, job, place in social hierarchy, and so on, and so on. My, the most elementary uh, point here would be about the notion of profession. This is ABC, even very simplified. You know that, for example, the notion of profession implies precisely that you are not born into your profession. You can change your profession. While, for example, primitive example, in medieval times, it would have been ridiculous if you meet a knight to ask him, what's your profession? My profession is to be a knight or whatever. No, because precisely this element of contingency is missing. And that's what defines modernity, at the level of desire and so on, that uh, our particular identity is experienced as something ultimately contingent. And this is the greatness of Descartes, his thought. Like, my favorite part is from the beginning, I always forget, I think it's Discourse of Method, maybe it's the other one, big text, where he says that when he was young, he saw other races as ridiculous, you know, their customs and so on. But then he says, I ask myself, but what if in their eyes our customs are no less ridiculous and so on? That's, I think, the definition of modernity. This idea that your own particular roots are somehow experienced as ultimately contingent, which means, again, that you are universal for yourself in your very identity, you experience the gap between what you universal are and your particular uh, actuality, embodiment. Of course, the problem is how to translate this into a political program. Uh, if some of you know Walter Benjamin, you know, he proposed this problematic notion of divine violence as opposed to... Uh, Mythic violence. Mythic violence is, to put it in naive terms, the bad one. Like the violence that used the state to reproduce itself. The, as it were, illegal foundation of the rule of law. Divine violence is supposed to be something good, liberating, and so on. But I would prefer to read it in a slightly different way. We all follow, of course, now these demonstrations in the United States, Ferguson and then that other killing, I forgot the name, of the guy who was suffocated by police. Uh, I think that the protests of blacks, and not only blacks, this would be an example maybe of what Benjamin called divine violence. Because it's divine in the sense that it doesn't, it's not part of a political project. It's just a kind of a blind outburst. outburst. And uh, of course, now you will tell me, but it's not just. It's horrible. Like, they just sometimes uh, burn cars, even maybe kill some people. And you can say, of course, my God, this is not just. What did I do? Yes, I don't think that what Benjamin calls divine violence is something just correct. It's something horrible, of course, if they were trying, but it's a, it's a way out in a deadlock. The other way towards, so again, when, you, when it's not able to propose a universal project 
as an articulated political project, you get this outburst. And I think this is the most terrible thing that you can tell about our society. You remember, this was also divine violence in this sense of blind, irrational protest. You remember a couple of years ago when cars were burning in the suburbs of Paris. You remember the protests in England, which turned out into totally blind violence, just looting the shops and so on. I think this is the, the most terrible diagnosis that one can give in our societies. If you have these explosions of violence, obviously something is wrong. But what is worrying is the impossibility to translate this dissatisfaction in even a minimal political project. Now, I will have to, before you play the superego, before I mean, have to condense it. So, uh, if we talk about divine violence, so where is theology here? Uh, here I would like to refer to a friend of mine from here mentioned him to me. You had, in, he was publishing books in 1930, but also before. Do you know your own Norwegian theologist? I think he was a genius. Uh, I'm not sure I will pronounce the name correctly. Peter Wessel Zapfe. He's a genius. In his reading of Book of Job, you must probably know the passage. He read Book of Job as what? His reading is that Job, when God appears, expected a sacred, pure God, whose intellect is infinitely superior to ours. But Job, quote from Zapfe, finds himself confronted with a world ruler of grotesque primitiveness, a cosmic cave dweller, a braggart and a blusterer, almost agreeable in his total ignorance of spiritual culture. What is new for Job is not God's greatness in quantifiable terms. That he knew fully in advance. What is new is the qualitative baseness. Like God is omnipotent, but uh, like a spoiled child. Uh, and I don't have time to go into it, but I really think that Book of Job should be rehabilitated. The lesson is important even today. as the first text of critique of ideology. Why? On the one hand, remember what happens in the Book of Job. Okay. Job, things turn back for him. He bad. He, he loses, but uh, no, wives. No, in the Bible, the line is I like. Goats, house, wives, and so on. They <laughs> okay, he loses everything, and then ideology enters. You remember, his three theological friends come, and each of them with a certain message, which is your suffering has a certain meaning. The first one basically tells him, God is just so, even if you don't know why all this happened to you, look deeper, you will discover a reason. The second tells him, okay, maybe you did nothing, but God is testing you, whatever. So again, the message is suffering has a deeper meaning. It's justified. Now comes the miracle. You remember when Jehovah, God, comes then. He says the opposite. He says, no, Job in his complaints was totally right, all that these theologists were telling him is bullshit, is wrong. Then, uh, then Job says, uh, ask God nonetheless, but nonetheless, why did all this happen to me? And here comes the mystery. You know that the official interpretation of that God's answer, which is something like, you know, all those bombastic evocation, where were you when I create those monsters, all that, is that God's answer is, who are you, zero, 
I think you are an opponent of metaphysical linear notion of time, no? And I propose that we enter this original, authentic, circular notion of time, you know? Okay, sorry, I will go to the end, just very quickly, yes. Uh, 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 Gilbert Keith Chesterton, my favorite theologist, proposed, okay, the standard line is God, uh, again, God just tells to Job, who are you? You are nobody, I'm so much above you, you cannot get my reasons. Chesterton's reading is the opposite one, very much in the spirit of your Zapfa, is that when God says, but wherever you are created, this, that monster, that God's answer is rather, you think only you are in trouble, but look around, the whole world that I created is a total mess. Every, everyone is in trouble, you know. Okay. What I claim is that such a notion of God as totally arbitrary authority and so on creates conditions for freedom, paradoxically. Which is why this being a typical Protestant God, you know, this totally unjust God, the God of predestination, it's a condition of freedom. Okay, read my next book. I will not go into it. Uh, just now to finish, if you allow me just to conclude, to return to concrete problems of universality today. Uh, I'm jumping over uh, things. Uh, the problem of United States today is how to remain a universal policeman. You remember a couple of weeks ago, President Obama gave an interview where he tried to explain the rules of the US engagement. I quote Obama, when trouble comes up anywhere in the world, they don't call Beijing, they don't call Moscow, they call us, that's always the case. America leads, we are the indispensable no nation, that's how we roll. <laughs> now, out of real sympathy for the United States, I think that this no longer works today. If nothing else, do you remember a week after it was reported in all media how Obama himself made a call to Tehran, offering them collaboration against ISIS, and basically Iranians uh, rejected him in an arrogant way. I think that the catastrophe of this politics is that United States are trying to play the global policeman in a world which already is multicentric. So they end up doing the dirty job for others. Like Iranians must be glad. Americans are doing dirty job for them. Bush was already doing this. I am for Obama against Bush. What is the actual result of the American invasion of Iraq? From American interest is that the majority, Iraqi majority is now under political domination Shia of Iran. Others are now ISIS and so on. I mean, America is again and again winning wars and war and losing peace. What is America missing here? The basic thing, which is that we are entering a multicentric world, and here I see, I will try to really keep it short, here I see the dangers. That's why I'm a pessimist, moderate pessimist, namely, the situation today, I think, is in an uncanny way, I'm not original here, but one should repeat it, similar to that before World War I. You remember how we had one global power, the British Empire, and then we had new growing powers, especially Germany, which wanted their place. And the result, we know what was it, World War I. Uh, 
today it's Russia, maybe China, and the place of Balkan is played by Middle East. So uh, this is the most dangerous moment, the multicentric world where we don't yet have the rules of conduct, as it were, the rules of politeness. Like, whatever you think about Cold War, it had a certain logic, unwritten rules, and this is what I find so terrifying today. The parallel is that in the same way as before World War I, for decades, Everybody knew war is coming, and everybody was warning about it. But at the same time, people didn't really believe that there can be war. And I think this is why there was a war at the end, you know? And uh, isn't something similar going on today? That's how I see it. We are, it's quite shocking. Are we aware what is happening today? If you read the media, Almost every day, there is an argument in our media for the coming war. Like, you know, it was like, oh, uh, Russian planes intercepted there. Russians have now a stealth fighter. Uh, uh, Putin wants this. Americans will counter it, and so on. Everyone is already laying the... It's, we are behaving as if we are slowly sliding towards a new war. But I think that at a deeper level, we don't really believe that it can happen. And that's why it can happen. Because, uh, what do I mean by this? First, okay, I will not quote you, just look at the media. All these examples of how we are slowly approaching a new world war, which again, I think the stakes are precisely similar to those of World War I. New global powers, and then is the geopolitic, geopolitical rearrangement and so on. And again, I think that uh, only, the only solution that I see is some mobilization with a progressive universal project. Ad what is not enough, that will be my point. What is not enough is precisely this idea, it's a dangerous situation, we should proceed in a very careful way. No, if you do just this, you already accept the frame, which is our situation is we are slowly sliding towards a conflict war and we should be careful. I follow here, he is quite a genius, I like him, my good friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, a theorist of catastrophes, who proposed a paradoxical notion of how to avoid catastrophe, that the first step is to accept it, acknowledge it, in the sense that we should see how we, it's not only the risk of world war, because if it's just that, then you still can say, okay, we always have choices, we, we should be careful. No, we should accept it that World war, new one, is our fate. Fate, not that it necessarily will happen, but fate in the sense that the whole global situation is pushing us slowly towards it. So it's not enough just to be careful. You remain within the same frame. We have to, as it were, more radically to change the entire frame or to put it in Protestant terms. New world war is our predestination. But, you know, and that's the deepest message of Protestantism, that's why I like it. Uh, 
we can change predestination. We can retroactively change our faith. That's what I find so liberating in Protestantism and in my beloved philosopher Hegel. You know, this idea that there is a necessity, but a necessity always happens retroactively. In what sense? Remember, if you had the fortune or rather misfortune to fall in love, it's always a contingent encounter, no? You walk on the street, you sleep, a lady maybe is helping you to get up, and then, oh my God, you went to a coffee. But you know what I'm saying? That then retroactively, of course, you interpret this as a closed narrative. It was predestined, you know, something, it's a very refined notion of how something happens contingently, but once it happens, it appears as necessary like everything was pointing towards it. This means that, yes, we have the freedom retroactively to impose, uh, to impose another faith, as it were. We have freedom, but it's not just that limited freedom of, you know, okay, Russians make a provocation there, let's not answer too much here. No, this is still the same logic. The whole global logic has to be changed. Otherwise, I think... Uh, we are lost. And again, uh, okay, I could have go on here because the examples of this paradoxical logic are, for example, Hegel gives another example. Look, let's take Julius Caesar uh, uh, crossing the Rubicon. Of course, it was a contingent decision. He could say, no, I remain up there above Rubicon. But once he did it, it becomes his fate. You know, this idea I like very much, profoundly Hegelian idea, not of a necessity of contingency in the sense of a universal idea to realize itself, you need contingency, but the contingency of necessity. There is a universal necessity, but it's a contingent decision which necessity this will be. Again, something happens contingently, but once it happens, it retroactively becomes, uh, to give you another example, just to throw you some things maybe to think, you know, that's why for Dupuy, my friend, his favorite film is, he's not very original, okay, now it's even voted in the last opinion poll as the greatest film of all times, Hitchcock's Vertigo, there you have that distinction, uh, you know the story, I hope, so the, when Madeleine makes the fake suicide for Scotty, James Stewart, the hero, it's a terrible loss. He loses the object of his love. But at the end, when he discovers that there never was a Madeleine, that she, he doesn't just lose the object. He, in a way, retroactively discovered that what he thought that he has lost never existed. In this way, we are not talking about magic in the sense of we can change the past. But in this, what he calls counterfactual way. You can change the past at the, level of, uh, at the level of counterfactuals. Just, I cannot stop myself, give me two, three minutes. Just to, just to, uh, to, to make it clear this idea. Let's take a statement. Uh, if Shakespeare didn't write Hamlet, then another one had to write it. This is acceptable, no? This is a fact. I mean, because 
Hamlet is written, okay, they didn't have computer programming there, so some person had to do it. If not Shakespeare, it had to be another one. But if you say, uh, if Shakespeare were not to write Hamlet, someone else, and this is the counterfactual statement, someone else would have to do it. And no, this is totally different. This, this is the same as saying, for example, if Napoleon, if not Napoleon, then another guy would have to take his role. This is the standard Marxist determinism. I think that against this, we should stick to, the one, to, to this logic of counterfactuals. Like something happened, and of course, at the level of counterfactual possibilities can change the past to amuse you for the very last phrase, it's the same as that joke about which books are now written. It was, okay, we all know it, it was in Hollywood, it's my favorite theoretical joke almost. You know from Ernst Lubitsch Ninochka, you know that famous scene when uh, uh, a joke told to Greta Garbo by her lover, that uh, a guy comes to a cafeteria and says, uh, give me coffee with cream, please. And you know what the waiter answers. Uh, we don't have cream, we only have milk, so I can only give you coffee without milk. Now, this immediately reminds me of my socialist youth, when things were sometimes non-available in the stores. And the classical joke is somebody comes to a store and says, uh, uh, is it that still you don't have toilet paper? And you know what? The salesperson answers him, no, you are in the wrong store. We are the store which doesn't have oil. The other <laughs> store there is the one which doesn't have... You see now how you can understand? This is what Hegel meant by determinate negation. That, no, like if you... The coffee is the same coffee, but it's not the same thing if it's coffee without milk or coffee without cream. How does this work? Let me conclude with last obscenity. <laughs> Did you see the movie? It's one of the most erotic scenes that I've seen. And nothing happens. You can tell this, uh, this story to your priest, to your grandmother or whatever. It's Ivan McGregor, the young one, when he was still playing working class heroes, when he didn't yet become Jedi and all that stuff. Uh, he's, okay, he flirts with a, he's a poor unemployed uh, miner working with a lady there. Sorry, flirting with a lady. And okay, after... In the evening, he accompanies her to her house, and then she says, it's such a simple dialogue. She says, would you like to come up for a drink of coffee? And he says, I would love to, but I don't drink coffee. You know what she answers? No problem, I don't have any. <laughs> Can you imagine a more erotic provocation, you know, like, because the point made is not about coffee, but without any, you just, that's the paradox. You offer something, then you take it back, but all the erotic tension is there. This is our hope. As long as we can do this, maybe there is chance for us. Thank you very much. <laughs>
And there were only 50 of them. They were in a room. The problem is only 50 is that, you know, like, you never were sure if Stalin doesn't see you. And at the end, they applauded to Stalin. And nobody dared to stop applauding. <laughs> and it went on for 15, 20 minutes. Some of them dropped down. And finally, Stalin, with his greatness, said, OK, enough, comrades. But I felt almost like death. So again. <laughs> My message to you is my old joke, maybe some of you know it, it's like, don't applaud so much. When we communists come to power, you will have to applaud. <laughs> Save your energy for them. For, for them. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, my talk was, I know, confused, but I was in a panic, you know. <laughs> I got, uh, but these are, no, unfortunately, the part which was not just a joke was... I think was, we have a couple of, time for a couple of questions also. You know, but that's my hypocrisy. I like to talk too much, and then I like to say with all the hypocrisy, I'm so sad that we don't have time for the debate, for the debate. Because, you know, I love debates, dialogues. Ooh, but you know which dialogues? If some of you are philosophers, do you know late Plato's dialogues, which look like this? One guy talks all the time, and the other one just says every 10 minutes or so, by you, Socrates, you are right, and so on, you know. So let's have a dialogue. <laughs> okay. I think we have time for one or two uh, short questions, and please state your name and also be short, ask a question. Oh my question. God, why this Stalinist list? Why the name? <laughs> okay, anyone? Nobody dares to say anything. Didn't you do your Stalinist yeah, duty? You know how one organizes in Stalinism the democratic debate? You distribute the questions in advance and... <laughs> Please. Ah, just be loud enough. I heard some reaction. You think you have to use the microphone since there are people in other rooms of the house. Where are... Was it somebody saying anything? There was a hand, no? Yeah. Although there is always this semiotic ambiguity <laughs> oh, that somebody is just scratching his head. <laughs> I think he was taking a photo. Take a, I hate this. I would prohibit selfies and all that stuff. Yeah. Ah. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry for that. Hello. Um, you talked about very similar... Hi, I'm here. Hi, yeah, here. Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, here. Ah, um, there. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, you talked about uh, some uh, very similar circumstances now and uh, then before uh, yeah, yeah. First World War. Yeah. Uh, I also... I'm not a scholar, but I also got the same uh, impression by what yeah. I read in the news. Yeah. So I was wondering, uh, but there is a very powerful element at this moment, I think, and it's our power of communication and the fact that people are watching. Uh, and it's, it, I think it should not be underestimated, this power of communication. And, and it might be actually a way out or to create a better a better model, right? So what do you think would be the, the role of that element now? How would it change our um, predetermined yeah, fate? Yeah. Uh, what, would, what would make the difference to that yeah. element now? It's a wonderful question. But I think, again, as always with new things, that the role of all this communication media is very it's ambiguous. On the one hand, yes, it creates a uh,
public space of instant, possible at least, mobilization, no? At the same time, you know, the guy whom I mentioned, Peter Sloterdijk, makes a simple but I think accurate remark when he says that this uh, global communication makes everyone a neighbor so that tensions can explode. For example, you remember, not here in Denmark, that stupi those stupid Muhammad caricatures. How, like, 100, 200 years ago, nothing would have happened. But precisely because we have one global space of communication, days afterwards, thousands were demonstrating, I don't know, in Pakistan and so on, who probably didn't have any idea, maybe not even where Denmark is, and so on and so on. So I claim that it's very ambiguous. I think this new communication, I think we should, that's my modest opinion, avoid both temptations. On the one hand, this naive dream, oh, we have universal medium, we can instantly mobilize. But at the same time, this also has, opens up, as we all know, new possibilities of control and so on and so on. Which is why I think that precisely what you refer to as this new social space is, if I may use the term which I think should still be used, it's maybe one of the main domains of class struggle today. That's what all is all about. Uh, who will control it? How will it be controlled? And so on and so on. I think that Julian Assange have now published a book on on, on, on Google, where he basically said Google is a privatized NSA, you know. And it, it, this, again, this, this struggle is uh, extremely important. It's not only the struggle for control of social space, it's also a struggle for so-called intellectual property. I think, in a very naive way, maybe I'm wrong, that although intellectual property may appear the ultimate form of capitalism with all this instant business. It's at the same time something that is maybe one of the greatest threats to capitalism. I think that if I may put it in consciously naive form, there is something communist in intellectual property. You know, because like, if I have a material object, this glass of water, if I drink it, you cannot drink it, no? Here is this competition, that's why I can sell it to you. But uh, with intellectual property, it has this paradoxical, precisely, property that the more you use it, it its value increases, you know? The more it freely circulates, the more... Every, so it's, I don't think capitalism... Again, this is what I list as critical points of today's uh, capitalism. One point is I don't think it will solve, it will have to introduce more and more of state control and so on to solve the problem, or at least to contain it, of intellectual property. Then we have the problem of biogenetics and so on. Biogenetics, as you maybe know, is the main reason why Fukuyama is no longer a Fukuyamaist. He told me, I met him at the round table, he told me, it, my game is over, I admit it. <laughs> then we have ecology, of course, where again, I don't believe that bullshit of, you know, local communities who process their own water and so on. No, it will have be a tremendous, we, we will have to reinvent, rehabilitate in large scale acts to cope with it. The problem of new forms of apartheid and so on and so on. I see so many problems that I think uh, 
global capitalism will not be able to deal with it. And even if we avoid a new global war, I think that in the best case, the Hollywood scenario will be realized. By Hollywood scenario, I ironically mean what? You know, people tell us Marxists today, oh, you idiot, you still believe in class struggle. And I tell them, well, Hollywood knows it. Don't believe me. Look at so many ongoing Hollywood blockbusters, Hunger Games, Elysium. They are all about a, f a coming society, which is the one of extreme class division and so on. And here even uh, Sloterdijk, the right winger, was right when he warned how it's a nice touch of how talking about global capitalism. It's not just global in the sense of all-encompassing. It's also global in the sense of a globe, protected sphere. We are inside, but from inside, we are not even aware of the outside. Like, the way humanity is moving today, some 20, 25, 30% are inside, and there are others who are outside. Again, Hollywood knew this long ago. There was already in the 60s, 70s, a series of dystopian films. Maybe you saw Zardos with Sean Connery or some others, where, again, the idea is the elite survives inside within a globe. So, again, it's Lotterdijk who knows very well that global capitalism is also a globe in the sense of a controlled, closed space, and where you even ignore the outside. And the outside need not be in some third world country and so on. Like this is why it was so shocking for Italians. Do you remember a year or two ago when there was fire in some suburb, small city near Florence, some 20 Chinese uh, were burned. And then they discovered that in a suburb of Florence, there is a small city where around 15,000 illegal Chinese workers work like slaves and so on. So, you know, you don't even have to go to Chinese Gulag or Indonesia to see all those slave workers. You, uh, they are here. We simply don't see them. I think it's a great art today of our apparently totally transparent societies, what we don't see. And in one of my books, I even developed the point that that's how TV works. You know, we watch news on TV, but it's absolutely crucial that what we see there and there you can see everything, raped women, suffering children, blah, blah. We see it on screen. It's not part of our reality. Although we rationally say, oh, this is happening somewhere, but it's happening somewhere else. And our entire strategy is to keep that somewhere else at a proper distance. That's why I think all these uh, charity programs are so popular, you know, the Starbucks bullshit, you know, like 5% uh, of our profits go for some stupid Guatemala children or whatever. The, I, the, I think that although hypocritically we talk about charity, caring, basically, intimately, be honest, we accept this as a kind of a tax we pay so that, you know, we love neighbors, suffering neighbors, if they remain at the proper distance, you know, outside our globe, precisely. I talk too much, I'm sorry. Okay, I think we'll end there with... No, the but there is another guy. <laughs> okay. Listen, you are a reactionary. Okay. One, you started one more on the right wing, answer, now please. at least give center a chance. Not to mention left here. No.
Um, hello. Hi. Yeah, I, I just want to raise two concerns. One is that I firstly agree with most of your attacks on post-colonialism and also your fights with the decolonial guys. I think you're actually right yeah. in those. But attack me, please, where you don't agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. what I don't agree is when you use Fanon, when you use uh, Malcolm X and the rest of these other yeah. guys, is that you tend to move too quickly to the universalist uh, line yeah. and uh, you bypass. Uh, because you use, you use a lot of Fanon's uh, conclusions. Yeah, I, like yeah, 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 I, yeah, I know, yeah. but the point is you become precisely um, like the very guys you, you, you disagree with yeah. on the basis that you point us into this kind of universalist move, but nevertheless you never want to stick with the strong um, part of Fanon where it re-emphasizes the very same black power politics. No, This is, um, this is the same with Haiti this is the same with Malcolm X, even if he points us to the X, but there's an imminent, uh, um, uh, 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 strong uh, retention of the black power politics. So it's not, I don't think it's this uh, big abstract universalist thing. Similarly, when you praise Nelson Mandela uh, uh, and, and his, uh, the ANC, the point remains there as well, that the sellout project that happens in 94 is part of this abstract universalist politics because he was not, or the ANC was not universalist at all because the sellout project, which includes white people in South Africa, mm. becomes the one, it, it, part of the process that ends up in 1994 compromise. So there is more universalism in black power politics. That excludes, in politics of South Africa, that, that, that excludes white participation. Same as Haiti, which excluded the masters. Same with black power politics, which excluded white people. But there's a dialectical relationship there as well. So, but I'm just saying that... Sorry. In, no, this is just a concern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just a concern that as much as you criticize the decolonial and all yeah. those guys, Mignolo and them, yeah. but there's a slippage with you with you go to bed with the same liberal guys. Maybe. Although I would say this, I especially like your formula that precisely you had to be black power to be truly universal. I would read this like that, and I wonder if you would agree, I mentioned this somewhere. I don't really like the movie, Malcolm X. It's too much of a, I know, okay, but I like one scene there. You remember when he makes a tour of campuses, a white girl approaches him and says, what can I do for you? And he says nothing. You can do anything. I don't think this simply means nothing, but it means you will not play the old liberal game of helping us black. You have to accept that it will be our fight, and then on this background you can maybe join us, but it has to be our act, and in this sense I see yours when you say black power. I don't think this means whites are excluded. Like, we know the role of Joe Slovo in South Africa, but it has to be as part of, you know, the whole shift should change. And here, as a Hegelian, I, I admit, I apologize, my mistake, but I totally agree with you that to be universal is never just abstractly universal. It's that, as you wonderfully said, 
There is a particular position which in a concrete situation stands for the universal. And this is, as you said, black power and so on. And here, here I simply agree. I would just add one thing. I hope you also agree. You know, we should make this very clear. When we talk about universality, it's not this UNESCO universality, you know, how this culture is nice, that culture is nice. No, the only universality I recognize is the universality of struggle. And it works wonderfully. When I was shocked how often, for example, we can play these games. If you go to Egypt, ooh, who knows, and you're caught in these stupid uh, multicultural games, you know, how do we know what goes on there? Aren't we speaking different languages? The moment you had their demonstrations fight, you identify with struggle. Universality today for me is not we are all one big human family, but it's we have a struggle, you have a struggle, let's unite the struggle. Universality is for me actual only the universality of struggle. It's not this humanist universality and so on and so on. But I will, uh, I will take your point. Can you even in a way, uh, 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 I would really, I'm not kidding. Uh, uh, my God, I almost put it in a racist way. Do you have a name or what? But uh, can you email me through them your name? Because I would like to refer to you that very nice point how this power, black power, that only through that you attain universality. And that's the Hegelian point. Hegel knew this absolutely. Universality does not mean some abstract will or it. It means there always is, again, a particular one which stands for universality. I, I'm just sorry that life is shit and we don't have time because of those oppressive partisans <laughs> of <laughs> metaphysical notion of I'm time. Sorry. You know, yeah. We will end here, but... I noticed that you gave voice only to right wing and to center, and that you totally... Yes, that's me. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Slavoj uh, will also give a, a book signing out there, but please, before you leave, just say, put just a few mani minutes so that he will be able to actually get out to the bookstore before all the 600 people I found people this incredible. It's the as in Stalinism. <laughs> when the leader leaves, everyone has to stay there, you know? Give him one more applause on his way out. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> I follow you. Ah, yeah. Ah. Okay, and just a few practical uh, notes on the debate that starts at eight, which will be in Norwegian. So I actually change change language. Klokka åtta så startar den debatt där vi uppsummerar den serien som har gått i höst om universalisme. Vis du ska vara med på den debatten, så bli enten sitta nu här eller lägga nog på stolen så att du så att vi ser eh, att det ska vara för vi måste ta en ny tälling och få gärna ett stämpel på väg ut hvis du inte har fått det. Så välkommen tillbaka till klockan 8 och dig som inte ska komma. God kväll.